Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, a special Women's History Month, Women's History Month discussion. Um, Laura Carlson and Jackie Goldberg will join us. We focus on women's work, women's lives, women's contributions as caregivers, as strugglers for pay of comparable value, as central in movements for change, and now how invisible our actual contributions are across the board. Our panelists will also select two women historic figures that they would like to lift up. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. We are now going to go to our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The head of Russia's mercenary Wagner Group is urging Ukraine to withdraw from Bakhmut as fierce fighting for the Ukrainian town intensifies. Ukrainian forces have reportedly blown up a railway bridge inside the city and a potential sign it's preparing to withdraw and prevent further encroachment into Ukraine. Ukrainian officials have also ordered a town in the Kharkiv region to withdraw as Russian forces are forging ahead with a new offensive there. Ukraine recaptured the area after Russian forces withdrew last year. In the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency is ordering rail operator Norfolk Southern to begin testing for dioxins in East Palestine, where a train carrying toxic chemicals in Ohio derailed and the operator conducted a burn of the massive quantity of vinyl chloride in the tank cars. That forced the evacuation of homes. Elected officials and residents in East Palestine have been questioning why there has not been testing for dioxins, a harmful collection of cancer-causing chemicals that may have been released into the air when officials conducted the burn. Officials briefed the community in a town hall last night. The International Agency on Research on Cancer of the World Health Organization does what's called IR monographs. They've got a big section about vinyl chloride causing cancer in humans, two different kinds of liver cancer, lung cancer, neoplasms of the connective and soft tissue, that's the stuff that connects you, tendons and stuff, and other cancers. OSHA has rules, if you're dealing with vinyl chloride, it's so dangerous you gotta put up this sign to warn your workers. The federal government makes you put up a sign that says vinyl chloride may cause cancer, which is why I'm a little worried about everybody coming in, oh, it's fine. Scientists say burning vinyl chloride can generate highly toxic dioxins. The House Ethics Committee announced it's launching an investigation into embattled New York Republican George Santos. The bipartisan leaders of the committee announced the panel had voted unanimously to establish an investigative subcommittee. The investigation appears to be far-reaching. It seeks to determine whether Santos may have engaged in unlawful activity with respects to his 2022 congressional campaign. The statement also said the probe will review whether Santos failed to properly disclose required information on statements filed 
filed with the House, violated federal conflict of interest laws in connection with his role in a firm providing fiduciary services and or engaged in sexual misconduct towards an individual seeking employment in his congressional office. The Justice Department says former President Donald Trump can be sued by injured Capitol Police officers and Democratic lawmakers over the deadly January 6th Capitol insurrection. The department's position that Trump does not have immunity in the case was laid out in a filing before a federal appeals court. The filing said although a president enjoys broad legal latitude to communicate to the public of matters of concern... Quote, no part of a president's official responsibilities include the incitement of imminent private violence. By definition, such conduct plainly falls outside the president's constitutional and statutory duties. Unquote. The Justice Department brief is separate from an investigation by a special counsel into whether Trump can be charged criminally over his efforts to subvert the results of the 2020 presidential election. An administrative judge with the National Labor Relations Board has ordered Starbucks to reinstate seven fired workers. The decision says the company violated labor laws hundreds of times during a unionization campaign in Buffalo, New York. Senate Labor Committee Chair Bernie Sanders says the panel will vote next week on whether to subpoena the Starbucks CEO to testify before the committee. Republican senators charged the Biden administration is using a $39 billion bill meant to build computer chip factories to further so-called woke ideas, such as requiring some recipients to offer child care and encouraging the use of union labor. The administration has countered these elements of the funding guidelines to the CHIPS bill announced this week will improve the likelihood of attracting companies to build the semiconductor factories and people to work there, a key challenge that could determine its success. President Biden says he will sign a GOP-backed measure to overturn changes to the District of Columbia's criminal code. Tennessee's governor has signed a bill banning drag performances in the state. The American Civil Liberties Union says it will sue. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. I would like to go to a clip from our sister station from, I think it was the 1970s, of WBAI of Selma James, where she talks about uh, what women want and what women don't want. Keep in mind, this was decades ago. And there's an awful lot of us who are divided now by class and by race. Um, And so we think we have a very good chance of winning. But whether or not they're going to take it back will be entirely dependent on what other sections of the working class are able to do or prevent them doing. And that's always been the case. We don't say that we don't get a wage because men have got wages in factories. We don't say they've taken it from us. Uh, It's certainly true that they give a man what you call in England a wage packet or a check at the end of the week and then the woman goes to the supermarket and gives it right back to them. That's absolutely true today. There's no question that they are controlling the amount of money that we have at our disposal. But first of all, we want money of our own. We want to be independent human beings without having to go to work in a factory or an office as so many millions of us have been forced to do on an international level. And second of all, we feel that when they do try to take it back, that other sections of the working class will have to fight like hell to prevent it from being taken back. That's not new. That's not new. That's the way it goes. They're always going to try to take it back from us somehow. 
But I think before they try to take it back, they're going to try to divide us. They're going to try to say, we'll give some women money and we'll not give other women money. And on an international level, that's already happening. Because whereas in Eastern Europe, they're now paying women to have children, in countries like India, they're paying women not to have children. We are not demanding a productivity deal. We want the money because we need it. We want the money because we need to have control of our bodies, which means that we want the right to have abortion and we want the right to have children when we want it, which means we must have some money of our own. We want money so that we can refuse the jobs that they are offering us now at a much lower wage than men get and uh, we know the kind of work that we have to do there. Either it's an extension of housework or it's heavy, manual, boring, disgusting labor where the clock doesn't move between one o'clock and um, two minutes past one, it takes about an hour. You know, on Monday morning, everybody in a factory, every woman in a factory says, I wish it was Friday. And somebody else says, you're wishing your life away. And the other person knows that that is absolutely true. You spend your life in a factory wishing your life away. You spend a li your life in the house wishing your life away. We don't want to wish our life away. We don't want to spend our life doing the work that has been set out for us. And the only way that we can refuse to do that work is by saying we can live without doing it. We are as much involved in wage labor in the sense that if we don't get money, either through a man or directly from a capitalist, we starve. We'd like to end that. We are not going to starve because we refuse to do their work. It's very hard to imagine what it's like to be free when you never have been. And I'm always afraid to imagine it because I'm always afraid that I'll be imposing the ideas, the mentality, the personality of an enslaved person on a future society. I, I, I don't know what it's going to be like when we don't have to work for wages and when, when we don't have to do very much work. I don't know. I don't know how we'll relate to each other. I don't know what it feels really to love without blackmail. I don't think any of us knows that. I'd love to find out, though. I know that every moment that I have that belongs to me now, that the most profitable way that I can spend it, the most rewarding way that I can spend it, is to organize myself and help to organize others to fight precisely the slavery that we all face. And that was the voice of Selma James uh, on our sister station WBAI in the 1970s. And of course, Selma, a founder of the Wages for Housework campaign. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we have a special Women's History Month discussion. Welcome our panelists now. But, you know, setting the context, we heard earlier the clip from Selma James, who has long been making the case for mothers and for recognition and actually payment for women's caregiving work. She says, women make all the people in the world, right? But yet we're penalized and we're impoverished, you know, as a result. Also, the Washington Post is reporting that in 2022, women made 82 cents to the median for every dollar men made. This is a survey by Pew. And that is in comparison with 80 cents in 2002. So that means since 2002, women's pay have gone up by what? Two cents per dollar for a man's wage. Let us welcome 
our panelists. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, Director of the Americas Program. She works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thanks very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. And to add to that, Laura, you're also a mom. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I am. A mother okay. of three children, two living. Three children. Okay. All right. Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. It is very nice to be with you and celebrate Women's History Month. That's right. And Jackie, you're a mom and a grandma. Is that right? That's Am I right correct. about that? Okay, there you go. And, and a great uh, auntie as well. A great auntie. So let's uh, dig right in it. Um, then Jackie and, and Laura. I mean, it's in a lot of ways stunning, but not surprising. This new Pew survey, the that has come out. The Washington Post headline is women's pay was starting to catch up. Now progress has stopped. People are saying that the pay gap has hit a glass ceiling, right? So what is going on and what are your views? I mean, Laura, we'll actually start with you because the article also says 48% of women in wage work now hold at least a bachelor's degree but yet they are earning less than men without a bachelor's degree. Laura Carlson, there's a lot to cover here, so let's start off the discussion there. We see these studies come out, and it's unfortunately not surprising to me that this wage gap has not decreased, despite so much talk about it, despite supposedly a lot of public policy attention to this from both national governments and from international organizations. This glass ceiling is a euphemism for discrimination and sexism that's structural. So none of these measures that have been adopted to try to take care of this, to try to reduce this gap, are going to work as long as the structures remain what they are, which are, of course, the structures of capitalism and patriarchy. We've seen here in the Global South statistics for quite a long time that women, through their own efforts and oftentimes huge sacrifices, have really closed a large part of that education gap and then they get into the job market and the same conditions continue, particularly when you begin to see in a world that's more and more unequal, the way that men dominate those high level, very high paying positions. That's a, a large part of where you get that wage gap has to do also with wage inequality in general. Margaret, you've been involved in this in this campaign of ending women's poverty, investing, caring, not killing. And there's a lot of statistics that are coming out regarding this. For one thing, the huge 
budget for the military that has siphoned off what many of us thought might possibly be a little more attention to a care economy after it was revealed during the pandemic how absolutely essential it was to human and social survival. But we still see a world where unpaid caregiving work contributes almost $11 trillion to the economy and children are making up 70% of the nation's poor. We're seeing a world where 42% of women can't get jobs because they're responsible for caregiving, where about 75% and sometimes much more in other societies of unpaid care work is carried out by women and girls. So none of that has changed structurally. And one of the things that I find most revolutionary and most convincing about Selma James' work in Wages for Housework and the global women's strike is that what she's saying is that it's not enough to reduce the wage gap and it's not enough to simply incorporate women into the paid workplace which is characterized by exploitation and continues to be characterized by discrimination, but that there must be this global care income. And what's revolutionary about that is that it forces a society to recognize the value of this work as a part of holding up the society and to actually designate resources for that. And also, this is something that I think sometimes people don't get, It allows women to have the choice. Women who are doing care work, which is one of the most important jobs in a society, there are many women who find it extremely satisfying work. And one of the wonderful things about care work is it's so based on love and on daily activities that fulfill you in the sense of doing for others. But that's not supposed to be and shouldn't be a reason for it to be invisible and undervalued in economic terms, nor should it be, crucial point, a reason for patriarchal power relationships to be sustained because the man has access to money and the woman's work is unpaid meaning that she becomes economically dependent on him. So I think that those are some of the major contributions of this whole discussion of a care income in a world in which even despite the the awareness that grew during the pandemic is virtually making no progress on this issue. Right. Thank you, Laura Carlson. And Jackie Goldberg, I mean, you have broken through so many barriers, so to speak. I mean, your work on LA City Council, being the first lesbian member of, of City Council, then going into the, the State Assembly, also heading up the LA Unified School District. Now you're a member of the school district. But Jackie Goldberg, you have really in your lifetime witnessed this movement. I mean, we've had the welfare rights movement, which was never really acknowledges part of the women's movement, but I think it was. We had a UN decade for women, for crying out loud, that I know I put a lot of work into, particularly the whole area of valuing caregiving work, the work, unwaged work women do in the home, on the land, and in the community. We have had UN resolutions. We have had women struggling on so many fronts. Yet here we are with this headline about you know, hitting a glass ceiling. And it further goes on, Jackie Goldberg, to say that, you know, men who are fathers actually get a reward for being fathers uh, in terms of their pay packet 
but women who are mothers, just the opposite happens. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, what the heck is going on? I mean, what's the problem? <laughs> what's taking so long, Jackie Goldberg? I think the problem hasn't changed. You know, racism, sexism, and homophobia are alive and well. And you can see it in your pay packet. Not only are we not making overall much growth for women versus men, but the discrimination against women of color is even greater. Because what you see is women that are black only make about 70% of the amount that men make. And uh, Asian women are the only group that seems to be uh, doing even close to similar to men. And the situation is exactly the same. First of all, industries define jobs as women's jobs versus men's jobs. And then when you do that, you then say that women's jobs are valued less because if a woman can do it, my God, it couldn't be very important. And that's really the ideology of capitalism is to try to find ways to discriminate against wage workers, to pit us once against the other. You know, I remember all the struggles to integrate unions that had been white only. And the white workers were told continuously that if black workers were a part of their union, it would decrease their value to the employer. So they fought against having integration. Then once they integrated, they found out that once they were all together, they were much stronger against their employer. They could no longer be undermined by people who would cross picket lines because they couldn't be allowed to be in the union because of their race. So the underpinning of capitalism is to find ways to divide workers. That's really the key. The key to them is to make sure that we see each other as competitors as opposed, as opposed to allies. That's beginning to change in some cases, but even when women go into, quote, men's jobs, for example, in the high-tech industry, you'll find more men with the education and science in administration and doing documentation and taking the notes in the meetings rather than you will see women being involved in the actual movement of high-tech jobs. Also, women get to move up, basically, only when the men above them move up higher. So they don't catch up. That's part of the gap. But I think the biggest part of the gap really is the same as it's always been. You know, mothers aged 25 to 34 earned 85% as much as fathers the same age in 2022. Women the same age group without children, without children, earned 97 cents on the man's dollar. So basically, fatherhood is a premium. Motherhood is not only unrewarded, but undermined. And I think it doesn't help that employers have grown greedy. Employers have decided after this pandemic that they don't really have to do much except go back to what they always did. They are no longer, at first they were offering higher wages. They're no longer doing that. That little game is over as far as they're concerned. They have done a variety of things and mostly what we are denied is a lot of information. For example, we do not celebrate women who tell our stories. Actually, that's the theme of the 2023 National Women's History Month, you know, celebrating women who tell our stories. If you don't know what women have done, then you can continue to assume that it's because women never did anything. I honest to God had a teacher at UC Berkeley when some women went to see the art history teacher about why there were so few artists in all the slides we were watching. His answer was women never painted anything. 
Wow. Can you believe that? His answer was, women never painted anything. So we then spent the next month bringing him all the women painters that we could find that had done wonderful things. And I will say to you, to his credit, the next year when he taught that course, he integrated many of the women into the course. Well, what I'm saying is, is that we can't be silent. We can't be silent. We have to speak up everywhere it is. You know, we tell women, if you go to any meeting where there are men and women and someone has to take notes, it's the woman who's required to take the notes. And I think women need to just say, I don't take notes. I don't know how to do that, and I'm not going to learn. Women have got to begin to speak up with their unions, to unionize. That's really the only hope. That say to, and to become a part of women. I became a part of the Coalition of Labor Union Women at one point that started, which we thought was going to break through, but unfortunately, it never really got the support from the national labor unions it deserved. This is a struggle, and it's not a struggle that's going to end easily because there is so much profit made from discrimination that it's one of the underlying principles of most major corporations. If you can pay women less, if you can pay black women even less, if you can play, pay brown women even less, if you can pay Native American women even less, then, you know, guess what? Your profits are higher. You're just your profits are higher. When I was on the L.A. City Council, we decided to do uh, that women, there were only four of us. We decided to pass a measure to require the uh, people who uh, in personnel to do an analysis of jobs that were largely held by women and largely held by men in the city, in the city. And what we found was unbelievable differences that made us actually begin to change some of the salary structures. But the one that bothered me the most was when we looked at the jobs that were called training jobs. These were jobs you could be hired for with no background at all, okay? These were jobs that we were gonna train you on the job. The jobs that men were being trained for paid almost twice as much as a training pay as the women were making for training jobs that, quote, women largely held. And they, none of them had any, any skills. We weren't paying for additional skills. We were paying because the jobs that traditionally men were learning to do were higher paying jobs. So we paid them more to learn them. These it's in, infiltrated into government. It's infiltrated into uh, corporations because it is profitable. It keeps costs down. And even government tries to keep costs down so that they can provide more services. It is a task that will take another generation or two. But we have to say that the losses that we've had in reproductive rights are not going to go unpunished. We're going to get rid of those folks who voted for this. We're going to change the political structure because it is in those places where people are being discriminated so heavily that they are, it's just assumed. My mother, when she first started teaching in Los Angeles Unified, was paid 30% less than secondary teachers because women were in the elementary schools and men were in middle and high schools. And they paid teachers with the same education, with the identical education, more if they taught in a middle or high school than in elementary school. It took a union to change that. So it is a fight. And it's a fight that basically says that if you're a mother, you're going to pay for it in your salary packet. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, we are going to continue this discussion. You're not going to uh, miss, want to miss any of it. We're going to take our station break uh, now. 
And when we return, we're going to continue this discussion. And then later in the show, we'll be talking about some of the women historic figures that Jackie Goldberg and Laura Carlson would like to lift up. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Not hearing anything. Lift me up, hold me down, keep me close, safe and sound. And that song from my homegirl, Rihanna, um, of course, from my home island of Barbados, but a major star. I wanted to play that song, uh, Lift Me Up. She'll be performing it, I understand, this coming Sunday at the Oscars. It was went with the theme song for the new film, uh, Wakanda Forever. Uh, but she was much um, criticized for performing at the Super Bowl while obviously pregnant, right, which meant she couldn't um, make the moves that she, um, people, I suppose, expected her to. So that song was uh, Rihanna, uh, Lift Me Up, and we're lifting her up. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at SoTrueRadio. And check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org. And we're also heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in New Jersey. And internationally, I would like to give a a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Germany. It is our weekly roundtable. We're having a special um, women's uh, roundtable today. Uh, Laura Carlson and and Jackie Goldberg are with us. And um, a, a lot of things, a lot of challenges to say the least. Uh, facing uh, women uh, today. Uh, There's a saying that says women don't tire. We just um, don't retire. We just tire. (laughs) It's just the opposite. Um, Laura Carlson, uh, in the first part of the discussion, you made the point about the impact of the lack of valuing um, women's unpaid work. And we know that uh, women and girls spend about 12.5 billion hours every day, every day on unpaid work. And in the US alone, if women were paid um, just the minimum wage, it would add up uh, to something like uh, 10.8 
um, trillion dollars, something like that. I mean, just an incredible amount of contributions. But yet, um, Laura Carlson, when we make any demands, uh, whether it is help with childcare, with elderly dependents, whether it's that we want to be able to raise our children full time and not to have to cart them off into um, a, a childcare situation, especially some that may not be the most desirable. Uh, the most impoverished women are, refer you know, our mothers, they are referred to as scroungers as though they're not doing anything. The child tax credit, um, the expanded child tax credit under the American Rescue Plan ended uh, because um, no Republican would support it. And the one Democrat, uh, Manchin, kept saying, well, this is just a handout because there needs to be a work requirement uh, to get this uh, to get this money as though raising children isn't work. Mm -hmm. And um, President Obama actually said that being a single mother is the hardest job there is. So just making that connection um, with us, Laura Carlson, about the lack of valuing of our unpaid work. And then when we do this work for wages, it is so low. And Laura Carlson, also, you might want to comment about even in movements for change, women's contributions are kind of, you know, even though central, often sidelined or not made visible, Laura. Yeah, absolutely. You know, first I wanted to to mention this context because Jackie says racism, sexism, and homophobia are alive and well. And that's very important to note and also to even go further and say we are we are facing a serious backlash. I mean, what is this criticizing Rihanna for being for being pregnant as she's singing her heart out? You know, um, and in the headlines. There's even this bizarre headline that they're objecting to childcare as a misuse of resources resources for woke culture, you know. <laughs> and of course, this this of the tax credit ending, um, we see it all around, and it's a very very serious situation. Because of this emphasis, oftentimes on the global gender gap in terms of income. Uh, we tend to to invisibilize even more what happens in terms of the unpaid care care work that you're asking about now. In my own case, I I had privilege, I had education, I was supported economically for being a full time mother for many years, and so what really stood out for me was the power inequality that this situation creates as well. If I would complain and say, uh, could we just redistribute some of this domestic work? I love it, I love being with my children, but this isn't fair and I'd like to do some other things as well. The response was two words, I work, you know? And so mm. implicit was I don't work because I'm just here taking care of the kids in the house. And 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 the conversation would end. And I'm a feminist, and I came up against this wall, and I really, I couldn't, there was very little I could do about it, you know, because of the commitment to the family and, and because of that relationship of power and a certain amount and even less than many women face of, of economic dependency. 
So the power relations that are involved in that unpaid care work are, are huge. And having a care income would be something that would also directly address those power relations. Now, the focus on the gender gap in terms of income is, uh, is also a kind of a capitalist um, way of, of, of moving the debate away from structural changes. The World Bank also just came out with a report saying that um, that if we close the female labor force participation gap, there would be a 20% increase in GDP. Well, what women who are really looking at economic, feminist economic alternatives are saying is that uh, the, the goal is not to enter an exploitive and a discriminative uh, labor market, that GDP should no longer be the measure of human well-being. They're talking about Buen Vivir. They're talking about planetary survival. Uh, the definition of care now, including by women's strike, includes women who not only are taking care of families and households, but who are also taking care of the planet. You know, there's a much deeper critique and analysis going on here that cannot be diverted into just this wage gap because it's talking about integrating women into a system that's never going to change in terms of being capitalist and patriarchal and that in no way fulfills their needs and their aspirations. It's talking about making women's uh, the women's movement and some of their demands functional to capitalism. We've seen that happen time and time again. Governments in the global South depend even more greatly on unparried work to compensate for the public services that they're not giving. There's another, another fact that's coming out that since the pandemic, uh, the austerity policies will be affecting like 80% of the planet. And that always means a cutback in any types of socialized care that's given. When we look around in the global south, we see that women not only took up the slack in caring for the sick and all the additional measures that were required, but also began to produce food. They also began to move into other basic needs that were no longer being provided by an already uh, very weakened state and so that so that it increased and it increased in the positive sense that it gave them greater autonomy by having access to their own food. But of course, it increased in the negative sense that there was uh, that there was too much work and not enough support. Absolutely. And uh, Jackie Goldberg, I mean, the data, when you look at the data on domestic violence, for example, I mean, it is really just uh, shocking. 85% of domestic violence victims in the U.S. are women. I, I read something somewhere that one out of four uh, women uh, at some point in their life uh, face um, domestic uh, violence, I mean, physical as well as a, a kind of an emotional uh, torture uh, that goes on. But uh, Jackie Goldberg, I'm also finding, and you have, you know, having gone through the women's movement and then the revived, the feminist movement, the revived um, a version of it, et cetera, that we're finding increasingly people are moving away from using the word woman or even using the word mother as though somehow that is being discriminatory, that it actually is descriptive, right? I mean, I wouldn't want the word 
black woman removed when somebody looks at me, you know, they know that I'm black. Uh, I do understand that there are issues now uh, around gender, people being sensitive uh, to the trans uh, community, but there are ways of addressing all of that in, in a not discriminatory way, including against trans women and trans people generally. But, you know, given um, all of the balance of work of family, what you referred to earlier, uh, Jackie, as a penalty uh, for being a mother, all of this needs to come out. And it seems as though if we don't bring it out and we shy away from it, that we are going to 10 years down the road, looking at another report that says, you know, women are still impoverished and that those of us in the labor market, our pay scale has only gone up like a couple of pennies or maybe a couple of dollars. Jackie Goldberg. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to start where you started in this, which is I'm increasingly worried about the amount of violence against women that started to increase dramatically when everybody was closed up at home and women could not escape the house. Um, we also saw an increase in violence against children abuse of children during that same two-year period. And that didn't stop once people could leave the house. We also, you know as well, and you've been a key part of this, uh, Margaret, about the disappearing uh, and the deaths of, of Black women in South LA with virtually uh, a zero uh, activity that has changed the outcomes or has found the uh, perpetrators of the uh, violence and of the disappearing women. We know that in many parts of America, Native American women disappear, uh, disappear regularly, and no one knows what happened to them. And the folks that are in charge of law enforcement, it's not a very high priority. So I also think that part of this uh, backlash that we just talked about is also about men trying to prove that they are, quote, men by the fact that they run their households. You know, I saw a clip yesterday in the Seoul, Tennessee legislature uh, about how the bill to add uh, uh, exceptions to the no abortion rule for rape, incest, and the save a mother's life could not get, uh, a, could not get enough votes to be added to their abortion ban. I saw in Tennessee, a Tennessee legislature say that, you know, it's interesting. I don't understand what all this stuff is about teenage pregnancy, because teenage pregnancy uh, is not a problem if uh, unless you're an unwed teen, uh, because after all, uh, nature, you're the most fertile when you're a teenager. And he was arguing for for teenage pregnancy being a good thing, which means that a woman's life is is ended in terms of her freedom of movement, her freedom of choice, the minute that she becomes a teen mother. So we, we are in a period of time in which the MAGA right, the, the, the folks are trying who have, have managed to pack the Supreme Court, and it means that we're not going to get much help. You're going to not get much help, and it means that the struggles are going to have to begin all over again. Some of the things that we thought and we won in the 60s and 70s and 80s are being systematically stripped away from us. Reproductive rights are clearly, clearly an, in, an, an indication of the anti-female, anti-woman sentiment growing as a part of MAGA. <clears throat> this whole movement 
to take us back to barefoot and pregnant, to being barefoot and pregnant, to being barefoot and pregnant, to be the tool of the of the man of the house, that the man of the house is only the man of the house if he's in charge, if he's running everything. This is a growing, being supported, not being fought, not being stuck. In fact, to say something other is to be called woke. And of course, to be called woke in a Republican dominated state is to be uh, finding ways to legislate against who you are. I think the irony of all of this is, is that as these folks continue to say that they are against big government, their view of government now is so huge that it's going to tell us what books we can read and who we can have a relationship with, who we can marry, uh, whether or not we can have uh, uh, control of our bodies. All of those things are being legislated now in order, and each and every one of them negatively impacts women and their our lives, our outcomes. And I agree entirely. You know, this system isn't going to change of its own. This is a struggle. And I think part of it is why uh, the National History Alliance's theme this year is celebrating women who tell our stories. Big part of this is an awful lot of women and all awful lot of men, too. An awful lot of people have no idea the contributions that women have already made to this country, to this world, have no idea what lives have been like as slave women, as women in in uh, in Native American schools who were uh, no longer allowed to learn their languages because they were sent to white schools, they were kidnapped. I mean, we don't tell our stories because those stories indicate the path we must take. And so I think it's important to talk about our stories in this uh, celebration of Women's History Month. Absolutely. And on that front, uh, looking at the clock, uh, Laura Cross, a fascinating discussion. We got to do this more often, y'all. You know, yeah. women are under attack and we got to fight back. <laughs> right. So but uh, Laura Carlson, um, we, we only have literally like, what, eight minutes, I think, left. And we did want to lift up some of those uh, women historic figures. Uh, Laura Carlson. Thanks, Margaret. Very quickly on movements and the violence within movements, of course, in, in, in Mexico and in other countries in, in the global south, as well as in the United States. It's very, very clear the, the patriarchal patterns, even within movements, and it's often even harder to confront it. Although on a positive note, we're seeing that younger generations of feminists are doing that more and more, and it's becoming a priority to call people out within their own movements, because you can't be fighting for freedom if you're reproducing those same patterns. I'm going to talk really quickly about Emma Goldman because she was such a huge influence on my formation and life. She was born in 1869, Lithuanian, Russian, Jewish, anarcho-feminist in the United States, actually in many countries. She was almost a borderless uh, worker for women's rights and freedom and was expelled from country after country because she never played it safe. She always spoke out and told her, told her story, and her story was fascinating and very brave. She was a midwife, a factory worker, a movement leader, and she questioned absolutely everything, but especially capitalist patriarchal state and women's role in it. She worked for um, free maternity. She worked against militarism. There's some excellent quotes that are so 
relevant today against militarism, that being part of this, uh, of, of feminist struggles in general. Um, and then the other thing that's very important about her was that she, she famously said, if I can't dance, it's not my revolution. She taught us that to move toward freedom has to be uh, a struggle, but it has to be a joyful process as well. And now as we're spending much more of our work on self-care and, and on what sustains us to, to keep in long-term feminist movements, those words become very, very important. And then the other one is Elvia Carrillo, um, a Mexican feminist born in 1878, who was fundamental to getting the vote for women. But also she had these characteristics like Emma Goldman of, um, of seeing where oppressions were in all aspects of life, not just the ones that had been politically defined by the socialist movement that she worked in and that she also had to push back against oftentimes to be heard. They ignored the, the demand for women's political rights even though they were in the middle of a revolution against a dictatorship. Um, and she eventually made huge gains for us. So right. those, these are the women that I think there's so many we could mention, but that these stories are so important and listening to each other is so important. And I do agree that putting those stories at the center is, is, is fundamental at this time so that we can understand each other so and we can get to that point of understanding and honoring differences while working together. All right. Thank you, Laura. Uh, Jackie Goldberg. Well, I'm going to start with, uh, first of all, thank you for Emma Goldman. She had a big influence on my life as well. Her two-volume autobiography, I think I have read three times now because it's so inspirational. Anyway, I picked Ida B. Wells Barnett, uh, who lived from 1862 to 1931. She was freed, actually, uh, by the Emancipation Proclamation. <clears throat> she was enslaved in Mississippi during the Civil War. Um, oh, hold it. I just lost my notes. Uh, shit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I think right. the thing that was most important about her while I find my notes again was that she was a journalist and and set up her own newspaper. And her newspaper uh, was very important because it brought to light the enormous uh, lynching that was being done in this particular time. And be, she uh, became an owner of the Memphis Free Speech newspaper in March of 1892 and began talking about uh, the lynching of black men. It, when she started doing that, it enraged white men in Memphis so much that they burned down the uh, office of the newspaper. And uh, so she began, uh, that actually turned uh, just into the opposite because that made her launch her career as an anti-lynching crusader and a pioneering investigative journalist. She traveled across the world protesting lynching, exposing racial justice. She helped co-found the NAACP, and in her later life, she worked for urban reform and racial equality in the growing city of Chicago. And I find that when I was teaching high school history, I often picked articles from the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Memphis Free Speech newspaper to have students read and analyze. The other, per the other ones I had real trouble with because I was really having a struggle. I wanted to first raise up uh, Joy Harjo, uh, but then I thought, well, now how could I forget Simone de Beauvoir 
whose second sex uh, really, really treated uh, me to a notion of what the, quote, myth of the eternal feminism was, uh, uh, or Sandy Cisneros, whose great book, uh, The House on Mango Street, has helped young immigrant children understand that it's okay to be an immigrant. It's not a bad thing. You're not s supposed to forget it all. So I finally ended up with uh, deciding that I would lift up uh, a, a person that's probably not lifted up often in these things, and that is um, uh, Marge Piercy. You know, Marge Piercy's uh, book, Woman on the Edge of Time, actually talks for the first time that I read uh, a, a, an idea of how you could have a multiracial, multiethnic society uh, without discrimination. And it is an extraordinary book, and I recommend it to everyone listening. If you haven't read Woman on the Edge of Time, it is really quite an extraordinary experience. But she wrote 17 novels. Her poetry is extraordinary. And it talks about women's lives in ways that often you don't see everywhere else. Um, she speaks on campuses, but her fiction and her, her, um, her po poetry is such that it, it inspires you to take action and to do things that need to be done. I believe uh, uh, the Boston Globe said it best. She's not just an author. She's a cultural touchstone. Few writers in modern memory have sustained her passion and skill for creating stories of consequence. Wow, just fantastic. Just love this uh, show, Marge uh, Percy. Uh, just very quickly, um, I would like to quickly lift up Sojourner Truth who said, ain't I a woman? And when woman gets her rights, man will be right and there will be peace on earth. Thus the name of this show, Sojourner Truth. I also want to lift up Congresswoman Gwen Moore, who the day after International Women's Day next week, she is introducing legislation called the Worker Relief and Credit Reform Act of 2023, in which she says that Unpaid caregiving work should be redefined as work, so should being a student, and that there should be resources for it. So right on to you, Congresswoman uh, Gwen Moore. And those of you who want um, next Wednesday, March 8th, there's going to be a webinar. Information is on the KPFK website. It will be featuring Congresswoman uh, Gwen Moore, Congresswoman Barbara Lee is sending a special message, uh, the Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, Joint Coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, Shally Barnes, who is the Policy Director of the Cairo Center and the Poor People's Campaign, but also critical in all of this, uh, Jackie and Laura will be women lifting, telling their stories, grassroots women speaking in their own voice about the impact of poverty, racism, ecological devastation, the war economy, etc. So please uh, join us um, and register. The theme is End Women's Poverty, Invest in Caring, Not Killing. What a fascinating roundtable. We have to uh, do more of this. Um, Jackie Goldberg, Laura Carlson, thank you so very much. And uh, today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. Um, if you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. We want to thank Alicia Vargas, our assistant producer and our engineer uh, for today. And uh, Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. Thank you so much for listening.